This morning's scripture passage is from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind." That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Thanks, Mary. Good morning, friends. Oh, I'm not sure you're awake yet. Good morning. Oh, you are awake. Okay, there we go. Welcome here. My name is Brad Julin, and I'm uh, interim pastor here at, uh, at the church. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we hope that you will find great welcome here. Um, <clears throat> We've got a slide there. There we go, there we go. The Church of All Talk and No Action. Uh, I'm not so sure I like my title for this, but um, it's, a, uh, it's a passage that takes us to the issue of being people of action. One of the great challenges that has faced uh, God's people is living out what we profess. Um, I mean, if you look at the Bible, you see uh, division and immorality in the church at Corinth. Um, there were rigid legalists at Galatia who condemned anyone who didn't follow their way of doing things. Um, Timothy had to stay on in Ephesus because there were people who were both twisting God's word and promoting controversy. You do know that there are some people that like to stir the pot, right? Maybe you know somebody like that. Um, and so a consistent love and holiness that matches what we profess is not a given for any of us. Would you agree with that? Two weeks ago, Pastor Jim spoke about how everything we do is worship. Everything we do is worship. And whatever picture 
um, that we have of the good life, whatever we vision we have of a life that is flourishing becomes our goal. We, we crave it, we love it, we pursue it. Whether that be wealth or power or popularity or sensuality or God, our actions get directed toward that goal. Our doing gets directed toward that goal. And that is why Romans 12 calls us to present our bodies, our whole life to God as our true and proper worship. The test of what we truly worship is not our church attendance or the songs we sing on Sunday. It is the sum total of our actions. Worship is everything we do. And that's why um, uh, when Jim was speaking uh, two weeks ago, uh, we were introducing some of our strategic initiatives, things that we think we need to do together to be, uh, that expresses our worship for God, to be uh, growing a, a, a plan of spiritual formation so that um, we are growing in Christ to be uh, starting new care groups, new small groups in which we challenge one another and love one another and support one another in walking closer with Christ and other initiatives. So when you think about worship in this way, when you think of it as everything you do in life, you start to realize that we actually attend worship services every day. My actions at work, at school, at home are expressions of what I actually love. And what I'm pursuing and what I'm really worshiping in my life. You know, the ads that we watch, they are worship leaders bidding us to pursue, to love what they are selling. They are inviting us to sing along with the values of our culture, to be conformed to the pattern of the, this world. You know, I, I think you know this, but you know, why do ads always use happy, popular, beautiful, sexy people to market their products? Well, it's because they're not just selling you a product. They are associating their product with some vision of the good life of popularity or happiness or beauty or sensuality. They are leading us in worship. And so it is the whole of our actions that are the best measure of what we truly worship. And Jim said it this way. He said, it is possible to think all the right things, but do all, do all the wrong things and thus fall into false worship. And I, I think that there are times when the church has been imbalanced to trying to make sure we believe the right things, we think the right things. And, and we have not always emphasized and balanced it well with the doing part of the faith. A superficial faith, an unlived truth has always been a challenge for people who claim to know God. We all need to regularly check whether we have been attending the church of all talk and no action. And so the book of James, which we are coming to today, was written to people who were struggling with exactly the same things that we do. 
It is a book about moving beyond superficial beliefs to doing what God says. James calls faith in Jesus without matching works dead. That's kind of abrupt. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but I believe the right stuff. Yeah, but how has it changed you? He calls us to examine our actions, our doing. And today, as we begin this study in James, it will challenge us to move beyond just thinking all the right thoughts, but doing all the wrong things, or maybe just not doing very much at all. So what about the book of James? Well, James, uh, the author, uh, identifies himself right at the beginning. He's in verse 1, he's, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are actually at least four Jameses uh, identified in the New Testament. The two most prominent ones are James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, who was one of the apostles, a Galilean fisherman. And the other is James, the brother of Jesus. Um, James, the apostle, the son of Zebedee, uh, has never been considered the author of this book because he was martyred fairly early in the life of the church. Um, Acts chapter 12 tells us that at about this time, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Um, so uh, we, uh, we have never considered James the apostle to be the author of this book's this book. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is the one who we believe wrote this book. He was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, It was his voice at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, In Acts chapter 15, they had a big meeting from all the churches around to talk about this thing about, well, do these new Gentile believers have to keep the law? And it was James who spoke at the Jerusalem Council and concluded that they should not place Jewish legalism on Gentile believers. He spoke with authority on matters, and when we come to the book of James, we see him speaking with authority. He's also seen in Acts 21 when Paul returned for his final time to Jerusalem, and uh, Luke, who's the author of Acts, says, the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So it seems James is the one named because he was like the lead pastor or lead elder of the church there. James was a Jewish believer, and he ministered in a Jewish context. And according to Josephus, the Roman, Jewish Roman historian, uh, he was martyred for his faith about 62 AD. So why was this book written and when? Um, it was probably written a, somewhere between 45 and 50 A.D. Remember, uh, we believe Christ probably was crucified around 33 A.D. So 12 to 15 years after the death of Christ, the book of James, uh, we believe that's probably about the time it was written. The book has a very Jewish flavor to it. Um, it's written to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And um, that's obviously a clear reference to the Jewish people, Um, But this author does not refer to Gentiles in his book um, or related subjects which become the dominant topic of many of the New Testament letters later on. Um, And so 
that Jewish orientation fits well with the early history of the church when Gentiles were only just beginning to be reached with the gospel. For example, there's no mention of the conflict with people we call, um, I guess theologians call Judaizers, people who wanted to make the new Gentiles into Jewish Christians and uh, were insisting on circumcision. Um, so this was probably pretty early on in the life of the church. And James uses the term synagogue uh, to refer to the, the assembly of the early church as opposed to a word um, that uh, we use for church and is translated as church in other places, ecclesia, um, is, the, is the New Testament word for church. And, but James doesn't use that. He still uses synagogue um, in his writing. Verse 1 says it was written to Jewish believers scattered among the nations. And so James isn't writing to a group in one locale. He's writing to people that are scattered around. And knowing the date and the recipients, it's likely that James was writing to Jewish believers who had been scattered uh, by the persecution against the church after the death of Stephen. And as the leading elder or pastor, he felt a responsibility for these members of his church who'd been scattered around, and he's attempting to instruct them as he would if, uh, if they had been under his care in Jerusalem. The letter reveals an intimate knowledge of their circumstances. Um, they were facing significant challenges uh, and perhaps persecution. They were being oppressed by ungodly rich people. Their religion was in danger of becoming a superficial formality. There were discriminatory practices that revealed a lack of love and bitterness in their speech and attitude, and it marred their fellowship. And so he writes to urge them to make needed changes. This book is one of the least theological books in the New Testament. James is concerned with false living, not false teaching. He's concerned with unlived truth, not so much untaught truth. So um, when you look at chapter 1, one of the questions that comes up is the unity of the book. And um, as you can see here, there's a whole bunch of topics in chapter 1. He talks about trials, wisdom, wealth, trials again in verse 12, temptation in 13 to 15, God's unchanging love, controlling your mouth and temper, being doers of the word, and genuine spirituality. And so it's easy to see this as kind of he's working through his grocery list of advice for people. But instead of a series of statements on various topics, I am going to argue that this entire chapter, indeed the entire book, is one unified argument. Chapter one is going to lead us up to the theme of the book. And the rest of the book is how you work that out in your life. And I want you to hear me, please. Seeing how these things connect together is a huge part of understanding what he's trying to say. And so we're going to look at those connections pretty closely this morning. So what is the theme of the book of James? The book is all about faith in action, about being doers of the word, about worship being everything you do. And the theme is found in verse 22 of chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so 
deceive yourselves, do what it says. So let's look at what James has to say to us here in the first part of chapter 1. After introducing himself, James says to us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. If it's true that James is going to talk up to us primarily about being doers of the word, why does he begin by talking about trials? What is the connection between trials and doing what God says? That is a major key to understanding this chapter. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that question. You got that question right, right here? Hands here. Grab. Put it in your hip pocket. Hang on to it, okay? Because we're coming back to that question. James uses a word for trials. Uh, the Greek word is paresmos. Um, to describe things that put us to the test. Like, Many words in English, its exact meaning comes from the context in which it's used. So, for example, we might talk about a joint as being the connection between two objects, say two pieces of pipe as a joint. Or we refer to some buildings as a joint. Or we refer to a marijuana cigarette as a joint, right? So, you know what the meaning of the word is by the phrase or the context in which it's used. Paresmos is the same way. And so here in verses 2 and 3, paresmos is translated as trials. But you know what? James uses exactly the same word in verses 12 and 13, excuse me, 13 to 15, when he talks about the test of temptations. That is a hint to us, friends. It's a hint that it's all connected together that he's using one argument, that he is dealing with the same topic throughout this section. In verses two, uh, 3 and 4, his focus is on how God uses trials in our lives. Later on, he talks about our tendency to blame God for the test of temptation. Now, when he talks about considering uh, it joy when you face trials of many kinds, he uses the word um, it's translated her, when you are faced with trials of many kinds. Uh, literally, the word face uh, is, uses the same uh, root word as we have for perimeter. It really means when you are surrounded by trials. Trapped, even. And the trials are not just one thing. They are trials of many kinds. I don't know. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt surrounded by trials and temptation challenges in your life you know the when it rains it pours feeling um, Dave Ashton was praying this morning uh, for David Fearon and um, you know I had a chance to have coffee with uh, David Fearon about uh, a week and a half ago 
he is such a lovely person. Uh, and, and we were talking and he was describing how when his wife Vivian passed away about five years ago, at the same, right around the same time, uh, he was, uh, his kidney function stopped. So he had to go on dialysis and he was diagnosed with cancer. Like, whoa. I almost gasped. Friends, that's, that's being surrounded by trials. And yet he has such a sense of God is working, God is using this. Um, so when his son called on Friday to say, hey, dad's heart is giving out, they're moving him into palliative care, I, I wanted to get back over there. So I walk into his room, and you know, you never know when you go visit someone who's palliative, who is dying, uh, you never know how they're going to respond. You, you don't know what you're... So I walk in, and he's kind of... He's got this very contented, almost a smile on his face, and he says, they moved me into the waiting room. I have an appointment with the king. Friends, that is sweet stuff. Here is a man who has faced great trials in the latter stages of his life. And yet he is, he is seeing the joy in, in these moments. That God is with him, that God has not abandoned him. And I think that that is what James is calling us to do. And rather than being bummed out by our circumstances, James' advice to us is to consider it pure joy. And we might ask, what planet is he on? Um, is he advocating for a superficial Christian denial of pain? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that James is trying to get us to stop in the midst of the real hardships that we may face and pay attention to the effect that they have on the life of the believer. God is using it in our lives. It tests our faith and it produces perseverance. The song we were singing, even though I don't see it, you're working. Even though I don't feel it, you're working. God is working through the difficulties we face to grow us to maturity. Um, to develop a tenacity, a stick to The King James translation uses the word patience, but that's really too passive. This is the ability to stand on your feet in the face of a storm. It is the development of spiritual stamina in the face of opposition. And the result is a perseverance of faith and a spiritual maturity and completeness that is not lacking anything. So perhaps we should ask ourselves, do you ever feel like your spiritual life is lacking? Okay, this is the part where you go, amen, amen. yeah, amen. me, yeah. That your life gets consumed with almost everything else but God. When everything's going good, what, what tends to happen? There is a, oftentimes there is a tendency for our spiritual life to, to grow stagnant. But in the face of trials, priorities are changed. 
Intimacy with God is hungered for. Faith can be deepened. Things that seemed important become trivial. What was once taken for granted becomes crucial in our lives. This verse is not telling us that we should uh, be happy about bad things that happen to us or that we should paste a smile on our face regardless of the circumstances. It is telling us to keep in mind that God is using even the painful and the tragic perhaps especially the painful and the tragic, to mold us towards maturity in Christ. He is speaking of an attitude of considered joy in the midst of tragedy and trial. It is not to deny the pain, but a confidence in God to grow you deeper through it. James now moves on to talk about our need for wisdom. We often quote uh, the next verses, uh, starting at verse 5, when we want a little mini-sermon on asking God for wisdom. But I want you to note the connection again. Note how verse 4 ends and verse 5 begins. Verse 4 says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then verse 5, if you lack wisdom, (laughs) he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. He repeats the word, you won't be lacking anything, but oh, you may be lacking this when you're facing trials. Um, It tells us that he's not changing the subject. He's still talking about trials. He's talking about the wisdom you need in trials. During such testing, if anyone lacks wisdom, he can ask God for it. And interestingly, the word if here, there are two words for if in the Greek, okay? Um, one is, you know, kind of if this or that, all right? You have two options. It might be one or the other. But that's not this word. This word assumes that whatever the condition is in the phrase that follows, um, is, it's true, okay? So, it would probably be okay to translate this as, as, if anyone lacks wisdom, and you do, or maybe since you lack wisdom in trials, you should ask God. The kind of wisdom needed, this is a promise of God's provision for dealing with life's trials, and the kind of wisdom needed is a practical insight to know what to do in these difficult circumstances. You do understand, friends, that God's wisdom can be counterintuitive. It's not what we would normally think. Like what better example could you give of that than considering trials to be a source of joy in your life? Boy, that's counterintuitive. So sometimes we need God to speak to us and to see things in a different way. The first Sunday I was getting ready to preach here, I was down in the front row. I was overwhelmed with anxiety, friends. That's very unusual for me, okay? I'm sitting there, and the Lord says, he, he spoke to me, and he said, um, don't you think I've done a good enough job preparing you for this moment? Like, it was like, you know, is it all about you, Brad? 
That was the wisdom I needed in that moment. Does that make sense? James, in chapter 3, James is going to talk about the nature of God's wisdom, and he'll contrast it with a wisdom of the world that he calls earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. And you know what? Sometimes our wisdom, even though it makes a lot of sense, humanly speaking, is earthly, unspiritual, or maybe even of the devil. We need God's wisdom both in understanding God's purpose in these trials and knowing how to deal with them. And we are assured that God gives such wisdom generously. Where do you need wisdom in your life? Is it a major crisis like family relationships or a little thing like how to fix something in your home? If you need wisdom, James is blunt. Ask God. I am often amazed when I am frustrated with things. Of course, I never get frustrated. How often it is that when I pause to humble myself and pray for direction, that God brings an unexpected solution to the problem. And often he does something else that is unexpected when I pray. Um, when I have a need for God and his wisdom in things that I can't solve myself, it begins to change my perspective and bring me back to a dependence on God. A dependence on God for wisdom starts to shift my focus from the worship of me and, uh, and asking God for wisdom leads me to give this problem and the results over to him. I have to yield my health, my home, my hobbies, my family, my job, my dreams, my fears, my trials to him. I have to present all of my life to him as a living sacrifice, which is my spiritual act of worship, my true and proper worship. Lord, I give all this stuff to you because it all belongs to you and I need your wisdom. And I want everything I do to glorify you, to be worship of you. Now James states that there is a condition to this promise of wisdom. We must ask in faith, not doubting. Well, I gotta say that's a pretty difficult passage or concept because, I mean, how much doubt is too much doubt? Am I the only one who has that problem? Um, I mean, I can identify, maybe you can too, with the man in Mark 9 who sought Jesus to heal his son if he could. And Jesus responded, if I can, everything is possible to him who believes. And the father's response was, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus healed his son. I think when we're talking about faith, we are talking about mystery, friends. Like, there's no scientific analysis of faith. Faith is both an inner confidence, an inner feeling that God is going to do something, and it's also a conscious choice to believe what God says. I develop trust and confidence in God as I experience Him, experiencing Him in different situations in my life. And that gives me confidence when I face a new situation that He'll come through. I don't know when, I don't know how, 
But there is an inner sense that I can rest in him. But when Proverbs talks about trusting God, I think it's really talking about trusting as a choice. Familiar passage, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. I think that's a choice. Am I going to trust in how I see this and what I want? Or am I going to trust that God knows what he's doing and what he has for me is best and that he is able to speak to me and lead me? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. This is not counsel to muster up a stronger feeling. It is a call to put your trust in what God says, not in what you think or want. It suggests that a significant part of trusting God is a conscious choice. Lord, I choose to trust you in this situation. I give this to you. And you might have to do that on a regular basis, right? Again and again, Jesus said to people, be it done according to your faith. Clearly, trusting dependence is something God highly values in his people. God's power for living does not come because we deserve it, friends. It comes by believing what he says. And I want to just say to you that God's supernatural wisdom for life is received the same way. Now, as we come to verses 9 through 12, we come to the brother or sister in humble circumstances and the rich. These verses appear to shift the topic entirely again, the attitudes of the rich and the poor. But I want you to notice that if you jump down to verse 12, it immediately returns to the issue of perseverance under trials. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Okay, wait a minute. So what's this deal about the rich and the poor in here? What is the meaning of the high position of the poor and the low position of the rich? Well, I believe that the context is telling us that this is dealing, still dealing with trials, but he's talking about two different groups of people. He first speaks of the high position of the poor or the lowly. So what is that high position he's referring to? Well, James doesn't elaborate here. He just says that they should uh, take pride in their high position. But James will return to the subject of the rich and the poor in chapter 2. And there he says, listen, my dear brothers, has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So in part, um, this high position of the the poor is referring to their position in Christ, saved and destined to rule with him in eternity. The poor are not outside God's program, but are given dignity and worth far beyond what their present circumstances would seem to indicate. But their high position means more than just that, friends. 
and we get a better hint of what he means about the high position of the poor when we see how he contrasts it with the low position of the rich. He tells us that the wealthy, he tells the wealthy to glory in their low position. And then he describes how the rich will shrivel and fade like a wildflower shrivels under the scorching sun. And since the context is trials, we can assume that the scorching sun he's talking about here is trials. So the glory or high position of the poor seems to be that they have known hardship. They have known difficulty and endure it. They know how to endure and hang in there when things get hard. They don't shrivel in the heat of trials. They have developed perseverance. And the very same circumstances that reveal the glory and great strength of the poor person gives gives him a new sense of worth. And it also humbles the rich and reveals their great weakness. Not having had to face as much in the way of trials, the faith of the rich is relatively untested. It has not yet developed the perseverance and maturity God desires in his children. James is highlighting a paradox here, friends. Trials reveal the superficiality and the falseness of the distinctions we use to judge people, especially the rich and the poor. I think that there is a tendency for people who are relatively poor or who have nothing or actually anyone who feels small in the eyes of God. That when they face suffering, there is a tendency, a temptation to think, well, maybe God doesn't really care about me. I mean, just look at me. I'm nobody. James is telling them they should glory in their high position with God when things are hard. They are the ones who know how to trust God when the going gets tough. And the tendency for the rich and the proud is is kind of different, friends. People who have a lot tend to think they got it because they deserve it. I worked hard for it or, or whatever. There is a tendency, a temptation for those of us who have much to think that we are just a little better than other people. To think that wealth is evidence of God's blessing. So, if that's true, then when we face difficulty and trial and loss, when your kidneys start work, stop working and you're diagnosed with cancer, friends, it is so easy in those kinds of situations to get angry with God in the face of, of the suffering because you feel like, I, I don't deserve this. James is warning us that wealth is not an indication of favor with God and that God uses suffering to produce perseverance in all of his children. That's you and that's me, friends. Those who have had a good life sometimes fade away from God when things get tough. They need perseverance and maturity that only trials can produce. 
Now James concludes in verse 12, this particular part of his uh, instruction to us, with these words, Blessed is the man and woman who persevere under trial, because when he has stood the test, when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God is, God is watching, friends. He sees the pain. He has experienced the pain himself. And he cares. And our pain is not wasted. God will reward those who persevere under trial. You know, in, in the book of First Peter... God speaks through Peter and says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined in fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think that that means that evidently God values tested faith, friends. And that that is something that will receive his praise in eternity. There are some among us who have suffered much. And our dear Savior is going to put his arm around them and welcome them saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Have you had any tough times lately? Have you been through the ringer? <laughs> it seems to me that trials either push us toward maturity and toward God or uh, we fade like the wildflower going, I, I don't need any of this. And move away from God. And God knows that too. He knows that trials have those, that kind of effect on people. And so, remember I asked you to keep a question in your hip pocket? Okay, time to pull it out. All right? Here it is. If James wants to talk about being doers of the word, why does he begin by talking about trials? What is the connection between the two? Here's my answer. My answer is this, because difficulties can easily become an, ex an excuse to delay doing, to delay action, to avoid doing what God is telling us to do in our lives, friends. We justify ourselves to ourselves and to others saying, I I've just got too much on my plate, or life is just too hard. God can't really expect me to love those people when they say those terrible things about me. God can't expect me to give to the poor when I'm just barely making my mortgage payments as it is. God can't expect me to watch my tongue when I'm under so much stress. Those are justifications, friends, and they are exactly the self-deception James is talking about when he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
This is my statement. You can take it or not. If we are not doing, we are probably deceiving. Deceiving ourselves. If we do not focus on how God uses the trials of life to mold and mature us, we are likely to turn them into an excuse for inaction. That's why he says, consider it joy. Consider it pure joy. Because God is using this in your life. Focus on that. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. But you've got to focus on what God, how God is using this in your lives. Otherwise, you are going to be tempted to use it as an excuse for inaction. To twist it into justification for pursuing your own pleasure. For the, dare I say it, the worship of our own comfort and ease. The people James wrote to were facing tremendous difficulties, friends. And I, I want to be gracious here, but I, I want you to hear this. James is not buying their life is just too hard excuse. Saying that is not an excuse for, for not doing what God tells you to do. That does not justify that tongue that's ripping apart your brother. He is not dismissing the real difficulties they face. He is calling them to see what God is using those trials for in their lives and to get on with doing what God says in his word. He is lifting up the poor and the lowly as examples of people who know how to endure when things are hard. And he is challenging the rich and the proud to humble themselves and grow up through the difficulties God brings in their lives because God will reward the perseverance of those who love him. Friends, worship is everything we do. Everything. Trials can become an excuse to justify pursuing other things, worshiping other things. God's word is calling us to loving actions and holy living empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is our true and proper worship. And evidently, God would rather risk our anger, frustration, and resentment than to have the kind of superficial Christianity that just goes to church and sings the songs but is more lip service than life, more ritual than relationship, more intellectual assent than transformed living. He wants to take us on to maturity. And he allows pain and tragedy and suffering to touch us. It is not punishment, but it is a refining fire that burns away the shallow things to which we so easily cling. Trials are used by God to keep us from settling on being a church of all talk and no action to make us doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to press on to maturity. 
And Lord, we would like that to be, uh, we would like to do that by attending classes. But Lord, the classes you teach involve trials. And that's not our first uh, desire in life, Lord. So Lord, we need you to give us your grace to walk through some of the stuff that you know we need in order to grow up and to be the kind of people you desire us to be. And so Lord, strangely enough, weirdly enough, in faith we choose to consider it pure joy as we endure trials that you allow because because Lord you are using it to develop perseverance and that perseverance must finish its work so that we will be mature and complete not lacking anything thank you Lord thank you in Jesus name amen